welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I talk to Anna Donahay, who candidly shares her personal journey of battling with alcohol addiction and the profound impact it had on her life. Anna's story is one of resilience and self-discovery as she recounts the relentless cycle of drinking, failed moderation attempts and self-loathing that left her feeling trapped and exhausted. She reflects on the internal conflict that dominated her thoughts, stole her time and drained her energy. In today's episode, Anna describes the approach she now coaches, a method that has allowed her to relegate alcohol to insignificance in her life. Anna's transformation is a testament to the power of changing one's beliefs, and in this episode she offers valuable insights and strategies to empower others to break free from the grip of addiction, to regain control, and to unlock their true potential. So can we start about talking about your own experience with alcohol, which escalated while you were working in the corporate world, and you've alluded to becoming a professional drinker? Yeah, so... I started work, my early work years were in a manufacturing environment, right? I was something of a sort of female rarity and with a home county's accent, I sort of wanted to be seen as one of the boys and fit in. So it was a boozy environment. I didn't stand out for my drinking. I I wouldn't have looked any different from anybody else for the kind of the habits. And then when I went into the advertising industry, sort of work and social life became very, very blurred. We had, you know, a very boozy existence in Soho, bars on every corner, et cetera. You know, and it seemed to be not just what we all did, but it was kind of expected. Pretty much every evening I would sort of choose to stay in and around work and drink with friends and colleagues. And there was loads of travel involved, you know, nice things. We went all over the world, airport lounges, hotels, that sort of stuff. But I didn't feel like I was sort of struggling to hold my job down. I think I think there's two things, really. I think, firstly, the body is capable of great things. So kind of fired by my ambition in my 20s and 30s and, and kind of with relative youthfulness on my side, I suppose, as well, I was able to kind of push myself at night and still rock up the next morning. Generally speaking, I was where I needed to be when I needed to be there. There were a few missed planes and things like that. But then, you know, the second thing is I was, I was good at my job. I know that sounds like I'm sort of blowing my own trumpet, but I was. And therefore, when you think about it, you can still be good enough, even when you've had a bad day by your standards. So I didn't feel I was particularly exposed at that point in my career. Later, yes, after I'd had children, definitely, but not at that stage. In a, in a way, Pandora, I wish that somebody who I had respected had maybe tapped me on the shoulder and said, have a word uh, with yourself, but it didn't happen for me to know really whether I would even have ever listened. And when do you think the turning point came when you started to realize actually this is not serving me and this is actually becoming quite detrimental for my health, my mental health? I would say it was when I went on maternity leave for sure. I continued drinking in the same way 
that I had when I was working, when I was going into the office. In, in hindsight, that should have been a massive sign and an alarm that, you know, what I had passed off as being professional behavior was now much more of a vice. Probably towards the end of my first maternity leave, I realized that I was in trouble. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I, I hated maternity leave. I, I don't think that's a particularly um, common thing to necessarily admit to, but I felt totally lost and totally out of my depth, very much out of control. I wasn't, I wasn't Mother Earth. I have always had a very unhealthy dose of perfectionism and I was very much at sea. I think I grieved for my work life. I felt great shame in that. And I, and I found the young mum culture deadly. And if anything, it could obviously be enhanced by a few drinks. And I, I drank more and more over the course of my maternity leave to know and to begin to realise that I was in trouble with it. And what was the knock-on effect then for your marriage, your relationships with your friends, your ability to be a mother? What was going on in the background there? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, the the openness and the trust that relationships and, and certainly marriage are built on have kind of gone at that point. I can clearly remember thinking that there's such a big part of me, you know, an ever-increasing part of me that my husband doesn't even know about. I have an entire life that he doesn't share and an obsession and a passion that he's not part of. And I just couldn't talk to him about it. I couldn't do that. I, I felt almost choked on the ability to talk to people about it. I, I feared he wouldn't understand. I didn't feel that anyone would understand, to be honest, Pandora, but I didn't feel that he would understand. I thought he would try and fix me, you know, which would involve a certain degree of kind of policing and, and smothering. And therefore, right there, you have that secrecy in which the shame continues to thrive. And then, of course, you know, it just eats and eats away at you, your, your confidence. I was capable and I was good at other things and I just couldn't wrestle this particular thing into control. It knocks your confidence and starts to permeate every, every part of your life, really. I broke every commitment that I ever made to myself about drinking and, you know, clearly just didn't begin to trust anything about myself or anything good that anyone therefore said about me. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious as to how you think mothers navigate this sea of shame and judgment, because I think there's this connotation attached to being an alcoholic mother, which is just so frowned upon in society. How on earth could you have be looking after a young child and be drinking excessively or using drugs? It's just abhorrent in a lot of people's eyes. How do you think we can dispel this social judgment and make people understand that actually it's not really a conscious decision you're making? You're in the throes of a really horrible addiction? I have no doubt and actually a lot of evidence through having coached young mums that there is an awful lot of shame uh, and an awful lot of guilt that goes around drinking at that stage in your life. You know, we build such high expectations for ourselves in terms of, you know, the type of mother we want to be. And we, again, these comparisons with other people, we draw these comparisons and there's an awful lot of society pressure and it's a really disorientating time, right? And it's so easy just to fall into the beliefs that can drive your drinking. I mean, I can remember them really clearly. And they come up when I talk to young mums all the time, these sort of thoughts of I'm not good enough or I'm not natural enough, I'm not intuitive enough at this, I'm not together enough or organized enough, attractive enough, 
I don't fit in. This isn't who I want to be. I don't know how to be this person. You know, that's something I hear a lot. And no one, no one wants to struggle at the best of times with this idea that they can't cope. No one wants to admit that they can't cope, let alone with, with being a mother. But I think, you know, the medical council, they describe alcohol as the nation's favorite coping mechanism, right? And at this disorientating stage of life, when there's so much new stuff coming at you, it's so easy to use alcohol as a solution. And it's so easy to throw judgment at people who do. I have an awful lot of compassion for it because alcohol is absolutely everywhere in society. And it is right there in front of young mums more than any other individual group I can think of, to be honest, the mommy wine culture. I mean, there's a whole marketing force behind it. So, you know, I truly believe we need to suspend judgment and understand, you know, the pressures that mums are going through and help alleviate those rather than casting judgment and casting shame on mums who turn to the nearest thing at hand, which is often alcohol, sometimes drugs. So what made you decide to stop drinking and to put it down and to say, right, this is enough. I've reached my rock bottom. And what was the process that started getting you out of the cycle of addiction? Well, I think I had a real wake up call as to how small my life had got. By the time I quit drinking, my world revolved around alcohol. It does make your world smaller. It makes it very one dimensional. You know, the cycle, the cycle goes on every day and it gets really boring and it's exhausting. And, you know, there's no space or energy in a routine like that for kind of big, explorative, curious, expansive lives. My life was becoming smaller and smaller. And I realized that I was prioritizing drinking and hanging out with people who validated it over doing much more interesting things. And and my light was literally going out. Now, I didn't have, thank goodness, a singular rock bottom moment. My, my friend John talks about bouncing along the bottom as opposed to having, you know, a singular moment. Uh, but things were unraveling. You know, my marriage was suffering. I, I was very, very conscious of the wedge, as I said, that I was driving into that. And importantly, my two young daughters were, were growing up and I could not fool myself anymore, uh, which I had been doing that they couldn't see what was going on. What I was modeling to them terrified me. It shamed me enormously, but it terrified me more, thank goodness. They were my why, they were why. I I sort of started to look for ways out and, and I knew I had to change because if I played my life forward, for, I don't know, five years, my default future just looked terrible. And ultimately, I, you know, I, I just, I knew no one else could do what I needed to do. I knew that I had to do it and it was my responsibility to do it. But, you know, I was, I was just still in a very painful place of being aware I had a problem, but not, not quite knowing what to do. So how did you start that process? How did you begin to crawl out of that really dark hole? Well, I used to wake up at about three o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning after having drunk quite a lot the night before. I'd always get this kind of racy sort of periods in the middle of the night where I couldn't sleep and I had anxieties and stuff. And I Googled, not for the first time, literally, am I an alcoholic? I mean, I, I kind of knew the answer to that. But I was looking to see what came up as, as solutions. And actually, 
a social post popped up that spoke to me in a way that deeply connected with me. And I, it was from an organization called This Naked Mind. I downloaded the article and the next day I bought myself a book. It's a, it's a very, very good book by a lady called Annie Grace. And shortly thereafter, I, I signed up for a program and, and that was the start of my alcohol-free journey. So in fact, that program was a sort of a longer group-based program of the methods that I now coach, but that was literally it. Am I an alcoholic? Typed into Google. And uh, this time, I don't, I don't know what was different that evening, but the courage to kind of go through with what popped up. You sound like an incredibly determined, focused character once you turn your mind to something and you make that decision. It sounds like you're going to throw everything you can at pursuing that and achieving the end goal. So do you think that mindset helped you on that journey and sticking with it? I do think it did, Pandora. And I think the other thing is that sometimes there's a sort of perception that weak people can fall foul of alcohol. And it's it's just not true. The number of people that I've come across through the job that I now do, you know, strong professional people, CEOs, you know, very, very top of their game kind of people, those kind of traits that can get you into drinking the all or nothing, um, throw yourself at it entirely kind of trait is exactly what can help you get out of drinking too. You might feel like you've lost it, you might feel because you've been in this kind of cycle of negativity that you've lost it, but it's there. And, you know, old habits die hard. There's no there's no doubt about that. I mean, trying to get yourself out of a hole with alcohol isn't the easiest of things. Of course it's not. But there were parts of the process or elements or principles of the process of the approach that I took, which made sort of sticking with it a lot easier. First of all, you know, the first principle is don't get locked into this diktat that the end goal has got to be sobriety. Because at the outset, you're going to have very negative perceptions of what sobriety looks like, right? That's not going to motivate you. If you start out believing that you'll never be able to drink again, that if I go down this road, I am never going to be able to drink again, then that is going to be the dominant energy. And that's fear. So that's not going to motivate you forward over time. The second principle is to start going easy on yourself. And, you know, there's an awful lot written about self-compassion and how important it is. But when it comes to giving up drinking, it's hugely important. You know, drinking is not, it's not your fault. It's your responsibility to do something about it, but it's not your fault. And this notion that the drinker is flawed is, it's just wrong. Alcohol is addictive, and as I said before, you know, anyone can become addicted. So if the circumstances are right, if you're unhappy or stressed and suffer from low confidence, all those kind of things, if the circumstances are right and you drink enough of it, anyone can become addicted. So we really do need to give ourselves a break on that because in the same way as, you know, feeling that you have to give something up forever isn't motivating, shame that shame is not a driver of positive change either. But the third thing that's really, really important is the approach which I took and which I now coach is this idea of stop trying to stop. This is a funny one for people to get their heads around, but it's like stop trying to stop and start trying to learn. So instead of fighting the habit with something like willpower, start observing what triggers you, you know, whether that's environment or company or friends or emotions because then the blips 
they become really productive opportunities to understand why you drink and why that happened. They're not reasons to go back to day one and start over again. They're reasons to understand and learn about what's going on and why you drink. So it's a process or an approach that's powered by positivity, you know, which makes it a lot easier to stick with. Yeah, as you say, I think when the end goal isn't I've got to abstain from alcohol entirely, which can seem like an overwhelming task when you set it, it's actually just one day at a time. It's small incremental steps. And as you say, you really learn from the blips. I mean, in my own experience, you then put yourself in the same position. And because you can fast forward and know that actually if I do X, Y, and Z now, I'm going to feel horrendous in three hours time. And it's actually just taking a step back and having that crucial pause between the stimulus and you know reacting absolutely i mean there are very few things in life that you have to respond to straight away if you have a craving or if you have an urge to drink if you can just put a few seconds between feeling that and responding to it you can start to really question what's going on here you know there there are probably other things that you can do to satisfy whatever that need is, but it's your body telling you something. Your body is telling you it needs something. Your automatic response is, well, it'll be alcohol. You know, it's my sort of one size fits all response to these cravings, it'll be alcohol, but it could be a host of other things. But it's about getting out of that sort of automatic response. I feel this way, I will drink. You know, it's about understanding what the feeling is, and what else you can do to satisfy it. And in those seconds, you can just make a different choice, a more mindful choice. And how do you advise your clients who are at that contemplative stage? They know they want to give it up, but they're still drinking. And it's that horrible limbo phase where you know it's not working for you, you know it's not serving, and yet you're still, by default, going to the alcohol. Obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, it becomes a lot easier. But having now sort of quit alcohol, my goodness, you know, the benefits from having done so are enormous. I would simply say to people, don't wait until it gets worse. I do sometimes say to people, you know, what what are you waiting for? Because surely it's not that rock bottom moment because no one, no one wants that. I mean, that's madness. You know, don't wait until it gets worse. Certainly don't validate your drinking by looking for others who are worse because we'll always be able to find those and actually we're good friends with a lot of them because that's you know that's another way we validate our drinking is we hang out with people who drink as much as we do so I suppose it's about being really honest and thinking you know how is this affecting my life and how uncomfortable am I with my relationship with with alcohol And I would flip the conversation in some ways and say, instead of asking whether your life has actually got bad enough, I genuinely, I think the question is ask yourself whether your life is good enough, because, you know, there are going to be a myriad of different ways in which alcohol is affecting your life negatively that you may not even have put your finger on yet. Um, But you certainly don't want to wait until it gets worse for those things to become more apparent and be, you know, begin to spill out into every facet of your life. Um, so if you do feel like your drinking is ramping up, if you hand on heart think I'm drinking more today than I was this time last year or even last month, then I think it's, you know, a, a really good idea to seek help. And of course, you know, there are loads and loads of different ways in which that can be done now that, that aren't just the traditional. 
Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Anna, will you now talk to us about why you decided to become the beliefs coach for people struggling with alcohol and what this means and, and what your coaching entails? My experience of life without alcohol is amazing. It is better than I ever thought it could be. And I don't want to sit on knowledge of how this can be achieved when there are thousands and thousands of people who need that that help and that know-how. Traditional recovery programs aren't for everybody. They weren't for me. So we we just need different solutions for different people. And, you know, coaching is is one such powerful route. The reason why I call myself the beliefs coach is in part the fact that when we boil it down to its most basic, we believe that drinking does a job for us. We give it jobs to do. We believe that it can make us less stressed or more sociable or more confident or happier. We believe that it can make us more interesting or attractive, that it can make us feel less bored or lonely and that it can help us forget our traumas or our inadequacies. You know, these are beliefs. We might not be conscious of them. In fact, given that they're beliefs, they often sit in our subconscious, but they are there and they exist and they drive our behavior. So my coaching helps people identify exactly what jobs they are giving alcohol to do and why they believe it's the answer. And, and you know, we can identify those beliefs and we can identify the beliefs and fears they have of not drinking too. And then we examine them. The coaching process is, is one of examining them. And given that, you know, beliefs are constructs, you know, we create them, it is entirely possible. And it's actually a very fun and interesting process to deconstruct them and to create better, healthier ones to base our behaviors on. We can literally, you know, sack alcohol from the jobs that we're giving it to do and then find better ways and better tools because then when you don't need it you aren't dependent on it and that emotional link is the really really important thing if you've got better tools and better tactics more self-belief when you don't need it you're not dependent on it anymore and then that relationship is is really broken so what were your beliefs when you were struggling the alcohol, what what beliefs did it serve? I believed I had more fun when I was drinking. I believed that you needed to be drinking to have fun. I believe that it made me more creative, which is an interesting one given the sort of the creative industry I worked in. I actually managed to sort of convince myself it was a prerequisite of the job, um, that it unleashed some sort of mad creativity in me and, and made me more creative. I thought it made me more interesting and ultimately, I think it. I, I used it, I lent on it for social confidence. To be honest, Pandora, I look back and I think to myself, I was also lonely at you know, a stage in my life, although I was sort of a part of a, a fun group and a, a fun business and a fun industry in London. I, I didn't feel particularly connected to anything or anyone. So I, I used alcohol to sort of fit into different groups of people and seek friendship and sort of like-minded company as well. So 
I had loads. I had loads of beliefs. Fundamentally, I, I grew up thinking that I wasn't smart enough. And that's just a sort of an inadequacy, if you like, that I battled with for quite a lot of time when I was growing up. And I look back now, and although that wasn't necessarily a belief that drove me to drink, that feeling, that, that, that uncomfortable feeling was certainly something I used alcohol to numb. So we really delve into that as well with coaching, just to try and understand, because some of those beliefs about yourself that can just be causing unhappiness can also be the drivers and the triggers of drinking. So again, you know, we look at we look at beliefs we have around the substance, we have beliefs that society gives us, and then we have beliefs around ourselves as well. And to sort of dive into those and, and question those are all fundamentally parts of, of the process and the approach that I adopt. What methods do you use to make people challenge their core beliefs? So for example, I'm inadequate, I'm unlovable, I'm a bad person, I need this because it makes me more confident what enables people to feel like they're taking back the power and the control into their own hands? So there, I mean, there are lots of different ways in which we can do that. But the, the, the key one is to really hone in on identifying what the exact belief might be and then where it's come from, where the origins of it are. Because uh, often these are narratives. These are things that we tell ourselves, stories we tell ourselves. And, and actually, when we start to dig into, well, where did that story come from? When did that first come up for you? And and what is it that has you believing that? We can start to see that it's not necessarily even, you know, your own true belief. It's it's something that you've picked up from maybe people in the past that aren't even in authority anymore or things that have come at you from school or from parents, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the first thing is simply to identify where that belief came from. So, for example, if we were talking about, I believe that I have to have alcohol to have fun, where does that come from? Well, then we can look at a whole host of different places, can't we? You know, the social media advertising, the fact that as we grew up, we saw our parents drinking. So surely as you grow up, you should be drinking. That's what adult socializing is all about. You know, all those kind of things. But then you can start to say, well, is that true? And actually, where where can you start to really challenge that? Because there are lots of people who don't drink. They have fun you didn't used to drink when you were seven, you didn't drink and parties were fantastic. So, you know, you start to just pick away at the truth of the belief that we have. And quite often I ask people to search around for external evidence as well. The belief might not stand up if you, if you kick it around from all angles. And then actually one of the really simple things to do is to write the belief in a different way, flip the belief around. I don't need to drink, to have fun, and write a whole list of reasons why that might not actually now be true. So with beliefs, you're not going to single-handedly turn them on their head in one session. But what you do do is you start to wiggle them around and realize that, first of all, they might not actually be your true beliefs. They've come from somewhere else. You don't have to believe them. And secondly, they're flawed. They fundamentally don't stand up if you question them. And thirdly, you know, a slight tweak on those beliefs can have you in a space where it's serving you much better. And it's beginning to, you know, it can be the start of a new relationship with alcohol. So, and we can do this on pretty much every every different belief that we might have. Do you think that low self-esteem is often at the core of a lot of people who struggle with addictions belief system? I think that at the heart of a lot of addiction, 
I think you can fill in the gap if of the sentence that says, I am not dot, 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 dot enough. And that we can look for, so it could be, I'm not attractive enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not confident enough. Um, I'm not successful enough. You know, you just pop into that gap. I am not something or other enough. Um, and therein lies the heart of a lot of addictive thoughts because not always, but in my experience, we are often looking at alcohol to fill in the gaps in our personality or to fill in the gaps in what we believe to be our inadequacies. Or we are simply prone to think so low of ourselves because of these inadequacies that we use alcohol as a numbing agent, which it is. It's an anesthetic. It's, it, it literally numbs pain. So if we have painful thoughts... And they are obviously, you know, the more they are about yourself, the more painful they can be, the more they can hurt, then yes, alcohol or other addictions can be our go-to to feel less pain, more pleasure. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And I think that, you know, for multiple types of addiction, it, it's often the case is feeling enough and feeling deserving. I think deservingness is is a huge part as well, feeling deserving of love, of not punishing yourself, of not pushing yourself to these extremes, of not feeling judged and shamed and just being yeah. okay with, uh, you know, the ups and downs of life and navigating those ups and downs and not needing to go to the extremes. And that is so true. And, you know, there's this really interesting distinction between, so if, if, we, if we think about that thought of shame for a moment, shame is this horrible feeling that you're somehow flawed it's not that you did something wrong, it's that you are wrong. There's something about you that is wrong. And, you know, that thing makes you feel undeserving, it, you know, makes you feel flawed and it makes you feel undeserving of love or undeserving of connection. And when, you know, because, because of obviously addictive behaviors are so often scorned upon in society, we take them underground. We don't talk about them to people and we, you know, we harbor them in this sort of secrecy, which makes the shame even greater and greater and greater. And therein lies that kind of perpetuated problem that you didn't feel enough in the first place. There was something lacking in your, you know, you, you had a sense of an inadequacy in the first place. And now the very thing that you've gone out to either use to fill in that gap and do that job or help manage the pain of that feeling is in itself driving a real cycle of shameful behavior. It's just a very, very vicious circle. But the thing is about shame as well, if it kind of flourishes and thrives in the darkness, it can't survive in the light. Once you talk about it, particularly with other people or a coach or you know, in any kind of recovery setting and you realize just how many people suffer in silence with the same issues, then that is very, very much the beginning of your way out. It, it truly is just getting out of that silence. And if, to finish with, I'd love you to just give advice to any listeners who are struggling with a dependent relationship with alcohol and, and how can they just start to make small changes in their lives? Well, the first thing I would say is dig deep on a level of commitment to yourself. Play your life forward by five or six years and you know try and imagine what your life will be like if you continue not necessarily getting worse but you just continue on the same vein 
And if you don't like what you're looking at when you do that, find the courage to just look for help. And I honestly cannot explain how great the rewards would be. Everything that we perceive about how bad life is going to be if we can't drink this thing anymore or take this particular drug anymore, everything that we perceive, everything we believe is going to, you know, that life is going to look like, it's highly unlikely to be true. Life on the other side of alcohol or any other sort of addictive vice is incredible because the freedom that comes from not having this thing govern you every day and and all the other, you know, the other health benefits and mental health benefits obviously as well. But it's about having the courage to take the first step. And as I say, these days that doesn't necessarily mean having to stand up in front of a community and label yourself as something. It's about having the courage to start learning what it is about yourself and what it is that's making you unhappy, that's leading you to drinking in the first place. Anna, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I just think this has been really insightful. And I think your tips and your tools are so practical. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.